If you are able, will you join me in standing as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be finishing out this chapter today. I'm going to start reading in verse 27 and read down through the end of the book, verse 34, or into the chapter, rather, uh, verse 34, and uh, we'll see what God's word has for us here this morning, all right? Apostle Paul, writing 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's been an honor and a privilege, really, to study what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, what it means to celebrate communion together, what it means to join with a body of believers and commemorate the death, resurrection, the life, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, as we finish out this section on the Lord's Supper, I pray that it would be... Um, marked in our minds uh, as how we go about looking in our own heart, how we go about judging ourselves, because we certainly don't want to fall under your judgment. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to be discerning and wise as we look inside. And then after we've looked inside, I pray that you'd help us to be discerning and wise as we look out and as we look at those that are around us. And I pray that we would be a loving gracious, kind embodiment of Christ, this congregation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. As you know by now, our method for preaching here at Providence is called expository preaching. Uh, we typically take a book of the Bible and we work our way through verse by verse. Um, and there are exceptions to that, and you'll see some exceptions here coming into the Christmas season. We, we'll take a little break. Uh, but by and large, we preach through a book of the Bible. To do so takes a, a long amount of time. Uh, sometimes we can take up to a couple years, two or three years, to get through a book of the Bible. Uh, but I think it's important for several reasons. And let me just give you some as a sort of a reminder. Number one, we read the verses in context. And so we get a picture of not just what the verses say, but we see it in its larger redemptive picture of Scripture. So we don't just pick and choose. Uh, Number two, to go along with that then, uh, we can't skip over any parts of Scripture that we don't like. Uh, We can't just say, I like this one, I don't want to talk about this one. We can't skip any. And the flip side of that coin is, Uh, no one who comes to a church service can ever say, uh, well, the preacher was picking on me today. 
because the preacher isn't picking what he's going to talk about. He's just simply going to the next text. So uh, if it steps on your toes, it's probably a good thing you are here, but uh, he's not picking on you, all right? And number three, uh, the reason why we do expositional preaching or expository preaching is because that type of preaching, uh, if, if, you study, if, if you follow along well uh, with the sermons, that's the type of study you'll do when you're at home. You'll begin doing expository study and you won't even realize it. You'll read a word and you'll say, well, what does that mean or how does that fit? And, and you'll begin digging deeper and asking questions of the text that maybe you just skimmed over before, but you're used to taking your time and digging into it to see what it means. So um, we think it's important here that we follow that kind of a format. So this morning we find ourselves uh, having worked through the book of 1 Corinthians all the way through uh, book, or chapter 11. And so we find ourselves here at the end of chapter 11, and the second half of this chapter has concerned itself with the Lord's Supper. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that the Corinthians have messed this one up, <laughs> along with a lot of things that the Corinthians had messed up. They had really botched this one. Uh, the rich folks had come into the, to the Lord's Supper, and of course they had a love feast beforehand, and they were coming ahead of the poor people. They were bringing their own delicacies and eating in separate rooms. And they would be done eating before the other folks even showed up for the feast. Uh, not to mention the fact that they would overindulge in the wine. And so uh, some of the people would be drunk by the time they would get ready to have the Lord's Supper. And it turned into a mockery. It, tur- it turned into a debacle. It was, it was just disgusting, really, if you would have been there, how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And so Paul has written this letter, and he's saying, Look, guys, the very ordinance, the very sacrament of the Lord's Supper that is supposed to draw you together, that's supposed to bind you together as one, that's supposed to tear down walls of division, is actually erecting walls of division. It's actually making it worse. In fact, Paul says it would be better if you just didn't even meet at all versus what you're doing and coming together and making a mess of this. So Paul has identified the divisions that's going on in this church. He's also given the solution Uh, to the divisions, and that is you need to celebrate the Lord's Supper in all of its particular meaning, in all of its wonder, in all of its uh, majesty. You need to rally around the Lord's Supper. Um, But then he's going to go ahead and finish this section. He's going to say, now, here's how you do that. Paul's a very practical uh, writer. Anyone who reads Paul's writings, you know that Paul will sort of lay out the doctrine, and then he'll say, now, here's what that looks like. Here's how you do that. And any preacher that preaches, if he simply preaches the word and doesn't tell you how to do it, uh, you're left kind of wondering, how do I implement this in my life? And so this morning, Paul's going to say, here's how you take the Lord's Supper. Here's what you do, step by step. And so that's what we're going to go through uh, this morning. In order to overcome the division, in order to come together in unity at this church, uh, two things must happen. Number one, the Corinthians must take a look inside their own heart, inside of their life. And number two, they need to take an active looking out around them. Who's coming around beside them? So uh, that's how I've titled this sermon. It's a look inside and it's a look outside. It's a look in and it's a look out. Okay, and those are the two message notes that you'll find there in your Bibles. Now, how the Corinthians respond to Paul's instruction here will say a lot about that church. If you want to learn something about a church, 
Watch how it participates in communion. Watch how it takes place in communion. Watch how it approaches the Lord's table. If a church is passionate about Christ, they will be passionate about the Lord's Supper. They will be passionate about wanting to be there and to be part of that and to participate with those around them. If a church is carnal, if a church is selfish, if a church is self-centered, more, more interested in, the, in themselves than anybody else, they won't be passionate about coming to the Lord's table. Yeah, him ha here, there. They might be there, they might not. Now, I understand from our Mennonite heritage, just not too many years ago, there was a time where if you missed more than two or three communions, um, somebody was going to come visit you. Somebody was going to talk to you. It was, a, it was a serious thing for you to miss communion. Now, I'm not advocating uh, that we set an arbitrary number that you, have, you can't miss more than so many communions. But I will say this. I understand the thinking that goes on behind that. Because if a person consistently avoids communion, then there is an indication there of spiritual decay. You know that? If a person consistently avoids communion, it's a sure indicator of spiritual decay. Whatever problem has led up to the fact that they're not participating in communion must be addressed has to be addressed or that person who consistently misses is at risk of eternal damnation. It's that serious. That's how Paul looks at the communion table. He says, it is that serious. In the same way, a person who participates in the communion ceremony or the communion ordinance but does so flippantly, it's just a routine, they're also at risk of God's condemnation. So, Paul wants this church to understand that and I want you to understand that this morning as we talk about this Lord's Supper and as we finish this up. The Corinthians' problem wasn't so much that they avoided the communion. They were absolutely there, but their celebration of it was anything but pure, anything but glorious. It was anything but... uh, The only thing it did was reveal uh, the facade of spiritual health that they tried to put on. They tried to look like they were all healthy and all nice, but when they came to communion, it revealed uh, their true heart. So let's look at Paul's instruction here and how he practically applies the solution to the problem of division uh, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Step number one is to look inside. So let's see what he has to say about this. In verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. When Paul talks about eating the bread and drinking the cup, he's talking about communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he says, it is possible to come to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner or unworthily, unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, it's easier to define what it means by first defining what it is not, okay? So let's first of all say what uh, unworthy manner is not. No one can come to the Lord's table because of their spiritual perfection. No one can come to the Lord's table because he or her in and of themselves is righteous and is um, worthy of receiving the elements, okay? We're all sinners, 
We all have things going on in our lives that would cause us to be unworthy. I'm taking a, a class right now as, as I work on my master's degree. Uh, in the class I'm taking, part of that class, uh, we have to keep a daily diary of what we eat. Every single calorie uh, that goes into my mouth, I have to tally up. And every morning when I wake up, I have to email this chart into my professor that shows everything that I've eaten for the day. Now, the calories in and of themselves are not necessarily the issue, although they could be if one was consuming way too many or, or, or not enough. But the issue that we're supposed to be looking at as we fill out these charts every day is, am I eating and drinking for the glory of God. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 10, when we read that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You remember that verse? Well, that's what we're trying to discover as keeping part of this, this diary. Am I eating for the glory of God? You know what I'm finding? Here's what I'm finding. I'm finding that I often eat because I saw somebody else eating it and I coveted it. I saw it on TV. It looked good. And so I went to the kitchen to see if we have any. You know, I'm finding that I often eat at night because I'm bored. And I don't know what else to do. And so I go to the cabinet and I grab something and I eat. You know, I'm finding that I often eat because I see it there and I just can't say no. It, that piece of pie looks so good. I just can't say no. You know what I'm finding? Every time I do that, guess what? I'm sinning. Why? Because I'm not eating for the glory of God. I'm eating because I'm coveting. I'm eating because I want it. I'm eating, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to eat. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's my motive? The last thing I'm thinking about when I'm bored and walking into the kitchen is I need to be eating for the glory of God. All I'm thinking is I just need to find something to do, find something to fill my stomach, okay? I say all that to say this. If me coming to the Lord's table is based on my worthiness, my ability to have myself perfectly clean before I come, I'm doomed. I can't do it. My worthiness is not in myself because I can't even eat right. Okay? So anyone who thinks I'm coming to the Lord's table because I'm worthy, because I deserve it, misses the point of this verse. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says coming in an unworthy manner. Christians should confess their unworthiness because of their sins. And what should they do? They should recognize their worthiness comes from who? Jesus Christ. I can only come to the communion table because I'm in Jesus Christ. Because I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason I can come. Not because of my own personal worthiness. I fail at that. I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. So in terms of morality and righteousness and ability to come before a holy God, I approach the Lord's table because of Him, not because of me, because I'm, I'm covered in Him. So what is Paul describing then? What does Paul mean when he says, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner? Well, here's what he means. Don't come to the Lord's table flippantly 
with no regard for what the symbols mean, with a lifestyle that denies the claims of Christianity. Don't walk up to the communion table and pretend that everything is okay in your life and and just go through the routine of eating the piece of bread and drinking that little grape juice and think that everything's all right. He said, recognize that when you come to the Lord's table, it's a serious thing. Don't just pretend like it's some kind of ritual just something that you do. How can you eat of the, the bread and drink of the cup unworthily? Uh, number one, you can treat it like a ritual, right? You, you can come and you can say, I'm not participating with my mind and my heart. I'm just following directions. I'm just walking up there and I'm just doing what we do three or four times a year. That's, it's just part of it. That's taking communion unworthily. Second, you can take communion in an unworthy manner if you think that communion somehow gives you grace or somehow makes you cleaner. If you, if you took communion that somehow you're on a better um, uh, merit or, or better standing with God, that's an unworthy manner. Communion doesn't do that for you. Or lastly, and I think maybe this is the most important, don't come to the communion cable, table with bitterness in your heart or with hatred in your heart toward another person. Don't come to the communion table if you have a blatant, unrepentant sin in your life. Don't you dare walk to the communion table if, if you can't get along with your brothers and sisters and you have a, a, a sin in your life that you're unwilling to deal with. Listen, friends. Listen closely to this. There are some people who will avoid communion because of sin in their heart or because of division with another person. Let me be very clear about this when that happens, okay? If your reason for not participating in communion is because you're unwilling to deal with a sin in your life or you're unwilling to deal uh, with the division you have with a brother or sister, you only compound your problems when you don't come to the communion table. Here's why. Jesus was quite explicit when he said, do this in remembrance of me. It wasn't an option. That wasn't a, I'll think about it. That was a command of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is not optional. Now, I know that in Matthew 5, it talks about if if you're bringing your offering and and you there remember that your brother has something uh, against you, lay down your offering and go make it right. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Here's my point. To avoid communion because that unreconciliation is in your life and you're doing nothing about it is a double whammy for you. Not only now do you have a division or a sin in your heart that you're not dealing with, you're specifically, willfully not taking communion. You have two sins going on, not just one. It's a serious thing. So go make it right and then take communion. Deal with the sin and then take communion. Or you put yourself at risk of the judgment of God. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So... Eating in an unworthy manner is not because of my righteousness, but it's because of my attitude. It's because of the motive. It's because of the reason why I take communion or don't take communion. 
If I come to the communion table and I'm not focusing on Christ, I'm just as guilty as the person who avoids taking communion because he's unwilling to deal with the sin in his heart or unwilling to make amends with the person that he has disagreement with. That is an unworthy manner. So what happens? What happens if a person comes to the communion table and he takes the bread and he takes the cup in an unworthy manner? Well, look at the end of verse 27. He says, he will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. By taking the communion elements in an unworthy manner, he is sinning against or profaning Christ. He's dishonoring the name of Christ. He is trampling Christ. If you ever watch the news from time to time, you'll see in some uh, foreign country, they'll take an American flag and they'll, they'll stomp all over it and then they'll light it on fire and burn it, burn it, right? Well, does that flag, that material, the sewing and the thread, is that, is that in and of itself anything? No. But it's the symbol of what it means, right? When I burn a flag or I trample over the, the flag, what am I doing? I'm dishonoring that nation, okay? It's the same thought. Someone who tramples by his feet of indifference or sinfulness and comes to the communion table and takes it without dealing with sin in his heart or takes it in an unworthy manner, it is though he is trampling on the body of Christ. He's dishonoring Christ. He's treating it with indifference. It's hypocrisy. It's, it's the very person of Christ. How you treat the communion table, my friend, is how you're treating Jesus Christ. So what are we to do about this? How, how do we make sure that, that we don't come to the communion table in an unworthy manner? Well, look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. To examine yourself means to prove or to test or to discern or to judge what is good. It means to, the, to look on the inside and to determine whether or not you understand the unselfish, atoning death and nature of Jesus Christ. And to look, do I believe in that? Do I trust in that? Is that where my mind is? Do I celebrate that? And then as I look around, and we'll talk about looking around in a minute, do I look out for the life of others? Let me ask you some questions that you could ask yourself before you come to the communion table. Ask yourself this. Am I tender toward Jesus Christ? Is he precious to me? Is he meaningful to me? Do I just enjoy being with him? Second, ask yourself... Do I spend time in his word? Do I spend time in prayer? Do I make it a practice of regularly attending those places where the saints are gathering together and they're worshiping him? These would be indicators that you understand what the body and the blood mean. These would be indicators that Christ is meaningful to you. He's precious. He's he's glorious to you. You enjoy him. These are the things that you should ask yourself before you come to the communion table. And if you look inside your life and you don't see those things, I don't spend time in the Word. I don't think about Christ very often. I might go to church occasionally and, and be... 
if that's what's in your heart, then friend, don't go through communion. Don't go to the Lord's table. Why not? (laughs) Verse 29 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now there's some debate on whether this ver- in this verse that word body means the body of Christ or whether it means the body of believers. I tend to think it's, it's the body of Christ, but either, either way, Paul's point is the same. If you come to the communion table in an unworthy manner, with no regard with, for Christ, with known sin in your life, with division between you and another brother or sister, you welcome the judgment of God in your life. You open yourself up for the judgment of God in your life. And what does this judgment look like? Because I don't think any of us in here would raise our hand and say, yeah, I, I would like the judgment of God in my life. I don't, I don't think we'd like that. What does that judgment look like? Well, look at verse 30, what, Paul, what was happening in this church. Paul says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died, or some of your translations will say, some of you have fallen asleep. Okay? That is why many... Now, let me give you a, a grammar lesson, a, a Greek grammar lesson. That word many there, it's very technical it's very complicated it means this many (laughs) it means a lot it means a whole bunch this wasn't an isolated thing happening in this church many people in this church were coming under the judgment of god this is no small group of people and what's happening to them well it says some of you are weak That's a term that means a physical illness that's brought on for which there will be relief, for which there will be recovery. He says, some of you are weak. Some of you, he says, are ill. That's a word that means a physical, a a failing of health in which there is no recovery expected. You are on your way to the deathbed. And then lastly, he says, some of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism that the New Testament used to, des- to describe the, the death of a believer. You, some of you have died because you've come under the judgment of God in the way that you've approached the Lord's table. Now just a side note, for those of you that your Bibles say um, you have, they have fallen asleep, that's a beautiful way to think about a believer dying. When a believer dies, it's just as though uh, he falls asleep he closes his eyes here and he wakes up and is, he's in heaven. It's meant to be a comfort to believers. It's meant to be a joy. It's meant to, to help us understand that there's no fear in the death of a believer. He closes his eyes. He fall, It's just as though he fell asleep and he wakes up in the presence of God. Okay? But Paul's saying here, why are you sick? Why are you ill? Why are you dying? Because you're coming to the Lord's table with no regard for what Christ's death meant. There's no unification of the brothers and sisters happening in your church, Corinthians. And because of that, uh, you're getting sick. Some of you are dying. This drunken orgy of self-indulgence that you call the love feast is causing you to come under the judgment of God. They weren't examining themselves. They weren't taking a look inside. They're coming with wrong motives. And God's judgment is on them. 
So let's ask the question. Is it possible that a Christian can get sick because he's under the judgment of God? Answer, yes, he can. Now, next question. Is it true that every time a Christian gets sick, it's because he's under the judgment of God? Answer, no, of course not. Look at John 9. The, there was a man there. He was born blind. He had no sin in his life. And, and uh, Jesus says, this is meant because, for the glory of God. So while it's true that a Christian can get sick because of unrepentant sin in his life, it is not necessarily true that every sickness is a result of the judgment of God. Okay? Let's make sure that we understand this. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which the flu bug flies around, right? We live in a world in which we're going to get colds, okay? So don't immediately rush to conclusions when a Christian is sick. He's not necessarily under the judgment of God. However, that being said, it is right for a Christian, when he is sick, to examine his life and see God, is there unrepentant sin in my life? Is the fact that I'm weak or ill an indication that there's something that you're wanting me to deal with here? It's a right thing to do. Doesn't mean that there's going to be sin there, but it is right to take a look inside and say, is that why I'm getting sick? And if you look inside and there's sin there, then you should view that sickness as an act of mercy by God to draw you back to him, to cause you to take a look inside and say, what is it, God, that you want me to see? And to draw you back to him. See, some of these Corinthians are getting sick and they don't know what's going on. They just think it's because I just don't feel good. Some of these Corinthians are dying and they don't get it. It's because they're under the judgment of God. Now, here's the next question that we've got to ask because Paul brings it up. Can believers die a premature death because of sin in their lives? Answer, yes. God will see to it that a true believer does not go so far in his sin and abandon the faith that there are times when God will allow a believer to die, to prematurely take the life of a believer in his judgment on their sin. Now let me explain that to you just briefly because this has happened in other places of the Bible. Let me give you some examples uh, so that you understand this. Uh, You remember uh, in the Old Testament there was a guy named Moses. Moses was the leader of the children of Israel. He was one of the most faithful prophets and leaders uh, that the nation had ever known. And for 40 years, Moses leads this stiff-necked people uh, through the wilderness, through ups and downs, through times of moaning and complaining, through times of great rejoicing and repenting. For 40 years, uh, Moses leads this people. Moses probably performed more funerals uh, than any other person in all of history has ever ever had to do. That was the life of Moses. And yet at the very end of Moses's ministry, he got frustrated with their demands for water and what happened? The Bible says he struck the rock and he said, I will give you water. And as he struck the rock, water came out. Well, what was he supposed to do? He was supposed to speak to the rock. 
In his anger, in his frustration, he disobeyed the word of God. And God said, Moses, you see those mountains over there? You're going to die in those mountains. You're not going to be allowed to go into the promised land because of the disobedience, because of the sin in your heart. And Moses died what we would look at as a premature death. He ought to have been the one to finally get in the promised land. He was the one that put up with this rebellious people for 40 years. And yet because of sin in his heart, God judged him and said, Moses, you're not going to be allowed to go in the promised land. Now, for us, that looks like a premature death. That was all in God's plan. God knew what was going to happen. God had all that planned out. But from our perspective, it doesn't seem fair. It seems uh, premature. It just seems too early. Let me give you another example in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, we read about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife. Uh, They sell a piece of property, and they held back part of the proceeds before they come into the, to the gathering of the saints. Now, very likely, they were coming into the love feast and the Lord's Supper. That's what the apostles did when they gathered together. So very likely, they were coming into the Lord's table, and they brought just a portion of the proceeds uh, for which they had sold the land. Now, the problem was not that they held back part of the proceeds. The money was theirs. They could do with it whatever they wanted. The problem was that they lied. And when they came in and they laid the money down at the apostles' feet, they said, oh yes, this is everything. This is what we sold the land for. This is all of the money. And when Ananias said that, um, Peter said, how dare you lie to the Holy Spirit? And instantly, the judgment of God came on Ananias' life and he was struck dead. He was hauled out. Three hours later, his wife walks in. They said, is this all the money you received for the land? And she, knowing full well what her husband had done, had said, oh yes, this is all the money we received for the land. Peter said, the very hands and feet that carried your husband out will now carry you out. And instantly, the judgment of God was on her life and she was carried out as well. This was the judgment of God the premature death of a believer because of sin in their life. From our perspective, it looks premature. From God's perspective, he knew exactly what was going to happen and he was not going to allow for Ananias and Sapphira to bring lies into that setting and into that early church. And one one pastor remarked, and I like this, he said, I wonder what the next offering looked like in that church after Ananias and Sapphira died. I bet that was the biggest offering that church ever took. No one else wants to die, right? It was the judgment of God in the life of a believer. So here's the question. Can a believer die a premature death because of sin in his or her life? Yes. This was happening to the Corinthians. Paul says you're getting weak, you're getting ill, and some of you are dying. Now, how does one prevent this? Verse 31, he gives us the answer. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Paul quite simply is saying, if you judged yourself, if you looked inside of yourself, then God wouldn't have to judge you. God wouldn't have to bring this sickness and illness in your life if you would take the time to do it yourself. But because you're not judging yourself, then God's having to come along and do the judging for you. Listen, folks. 
when you come to the communion's table, don't play games. Don't cover up your sin. Don't deny it. Don't act like everything is hunky-dory when it's not. Take the time to examine your heart, to come under that bright light, if you will, of the Word of God and that convicting work of the Holy Spirit and let Him do His work so that when you come to the communion table, you're not coming in an unworthy manner. The truth of the Word will set you free and in freedom you can come to the communion table in Christ. Now you've got to understand here when Paul's talking about the judgment of God on the life of a believer, the life of a believer, this is not the same as condemnation. Judgment, we could say, is a timely warning. Condemnation is an irrevocable sentence. Let me show you the difference. Look at verse 32. Paul says, when we are judged by the Lord, and he's including himself in there with these believers, with, with the saints that gathered at Corinth, he's saying, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. When God judges a believer, that is called discipline. When God judges an unbeliever, that is called condemnation. Okay? Discipline is that which separates a believer from the world. That is, that se- discipline is that which causes a believer to recognize he's straying away from God and it brings him back, okay? Whether it's I'm getting, I'm getting sick or whether I'm getting in trouble with the law or whether a fellow believer is coming and, and, and admonishing me, God uses discipline to bring us away from the world and back to him. If you're a parent in this room, you understand what I'm talking about when I say disciplining your child. When you have to discipline your child, you're not condemning him. You're not kicking him out of the family. You're not throwing him to the uttermost. You're wanting him to separate from his sinful behavior and come under your rightful authority, right? That's what you do when you discipline your child. When God disciplines his children, believers, He wants them to separate themselves from their sinful behavior and come under his rightful authority. That is the discipline of God. That is what a believer endures, the discipline of God. And Alex read this morning out of Hebrews 12, every true believer has discipline in his life. If if there's no discipline in your life, either from the convicting word of the Spirit as you read or from other circumstances, then you should question whether you're a legitimate child of God. Because every believer is disciplined. It's an act of mercy. It's because God loves you. It's because he doesn't want you to go so far away. If I, as a parent, didn't care about my child, would I ever take the time to discipline him? No. Just let him go do his thing. But it's because I love him, because I care about him, that I want him to come back under my authority. That's the nature and that's the object of God to bring you back to him. So it's an act of love when God disciplines you. It's an act of his mercy. It's an act of his grace. And Paul says, I want you to understand that this discipline is meant to bring you back because if it doesn't bring you back, Paul says, then one day you'll suffer the condemnation of unbelievers. 
you'll suffer the condemnation of the rest of the world. And Paul says, that's not what you want. That's not what I want for you. So I hope by now, as you think about the Lord's Supper, you understand the importance of what it means to look inside. Don't come to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You invite the discipline of God in your life. And if you ignore the discipline of God and you consistently shove the discipline of God aside and you don't deal with the sin that he's trying to point out in your life, then you run the risk of showing yourself not to be a believer at all and falling under the condemnation with the rest of the world. So it's a look inside. Paul says, here's the other half of the equation and it's much quicker. There's a look outside. Look at verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait on one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul says, take a look around you. Wait on other people. (laughs) Make sure that when you come to the communion table, that you don't start chowing down at this love feast before everybody's even there. Make sure that you take time to examine not only your own life and how, what's going on in here, but how are you living it out out here? How are the people around you affected by your life? Your focus should be on Christ, and if your focus is on Christ, then that moves you on the inside and it affects you on the outside. It brings about a change of behavior on the outside. You and I should have a life that's more concerned about others um, than it is ourselves. Uh, more concerned about serving others than serving ourselves. Is that you? Do you ever come to church? Do you ever come to the Lord's table? Do you ever go home? Do you ever go to work with this burning question in your mind? How can I serve someone else today? How can I look out for someone else today? I think far too often we come to church and we come because we're there to take, take, take. This is a blessing for me. It's a blessing for me and it should be. But the greatest part should be, I want to be a blessing to the Lord and I want to be a blessing to others. How can I do that today? I'm going to help somebody get their coffee. I'm going to help somebody find their Sunday school classroom. I'm going to encourage someone today who just looks down. I'm going to go pray with somebody today. I'm just going to put my arm around and tell them I'm praying for them. I'm going to encourage someone and ask them, how's your marriage going? How's your parenting going? I'm going to open myself up. I'm going to serve someone else today. Is that your focus? Or do you come to church and say, oh, that was nice. That was encouraging. And you go home never once having thought about someone else around you. Paul says, you look in and you look out. For the Corinthians, it was looking in and then looking out, making sure that everybody was there. For us, it might look a little different. It's looking in, but looking out. How can I serve those around me? Now, Paul finishes this chapter, and he says, about the other things, I will give you directions when I come, and he leaves it at that. We don't know what the other directions were. He never comes back to it. He never says, and it's not revealed in his second letter to the Corinthians. So, All we know is that that will be on our list of questions when we get to heaven. Paul, what were the other directions that you gave that church back there in Corinth? I'd like to know. What else were you wanting to say that could wait? Obviously, it wasn't anything too major. It could wait until Paul went to visit them. It's a look in. It's a look out. 
For you and I, it's a look in when we come to the communion table, when we come into the assembly of of God, when we think about Christ, and it's a look out. How do I serve others? How do I engage others? I would like for you to bow your heads with me for, for just a minute, and we'll close by doing this. Just bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you look in your heart and it's filled with every imaginable sin that you wish wasn't there. Friend, let me tell you, Christ died for that sin. Christ was buried for that sin. On the cross, Christ took the punishment for that sin that you see in your heart. He died for you so that you could be reconciled to the Father. Christ rose from the dead, and if you will believe on Him, if you will trust in Him, if you will repent of your sin, and you will cling to Him, friend, you can be forgiven today. If you're here this morning, and you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but your life's been just a little bit messed up lately, you look inside of your heart and you don't know if you're under the judgment of God, but you certainly can see why you should be. Then friend, let me encourage you with this verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you will confess, he will forgive even if it's the hundredth time you've had to come back to him with the same sin and you're battling, you're struggling, but you're pushing, you're trying. Friend, if you will confess, he is faithful. God is faithful. Don't leave this room this morning unless you are convinced of the faithfulness of God. I want you to leave this room this morning knowing that if you're a believer, you have a Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father and He is interceding for you at this moment. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. He's willing to take you back. He desires to give you a blessing. His arms are open and he says, if you will but come back to me, I will graciously take you in.